0: Let's open our Bibles, please, to the book of Isaiah, the 19th chapter. Now, if you notice, Isaiah chapter 19, the very first verse says, The burden of Egypt. The burden of Egypt. And that burden is carried on to the 20th chapter, verse 6. In fact, the 20th chapter is a kind of an appendix, or a uh, we might say, um, something that illustrates a footnote to this prophecy concerning Egypt. And it's demonstrated, the 20th chapter, and it may be a little bit embarrassing by Isaiah running around not fully clothed. It says naked, but that doesn't mean nude, by the way, in the Bible. Uh, just only a loincloth around him, and he's not too well covered. To show the fact that uh, Egypt would be much the same as far as their their condition before God. So anyway, we'll pick it up and try to give you a message here. Let's look at the 19th chapter, verse 1. It says, "...the burden of Egypt, behold, the Lord rideth upon a swift cloud, and shall come into Egypt, and the idols of Egypt shall be moved at His presence, and the heart of Egypt shall melt in the midst of it." So we have the judgment against Egypt that's announced. And uh, we find... Uh, a statement I want to read to you: The late Dr. Wilbur B. Smith, Wilbur, Wilbur M. Smith, I should say, and he's a very uh, good prophecy uh, scholar, a leading prophetic scholar, wrote that Isaiah 19 contains the most important prophetic utterance concerning Egypt in all of the Old Testament. So this passage of scripture is very important because it has to do with something that happened to them during their their captivity during the judgment of God at this particular time, and the future of Egypt in the, in a, what we call in that day, in the future. And we find that in the book of Revelation. And so he says it's the most important prophetic utterance concerning Egypt in all of the Old Testament. And it's a remarkable prophecy, for Isaiah declares that the three enemies... Egypt, and Israel, and Assyria, now modern Iraq, Assyria, that these three enemies will one day be united in worshiping the Lord and sharing His blessings. And when we get to the latter part of this chapter, we'll see that that's the case. And that is a miracle in itself, isn't it? That you would find Egypt, and Israel, and what's now known as Iraq, or Assyria, and yet, Those people are just as precious in the sight of God and those in Egypt and those in Israel so that God is going to save them and multitudes of them and the last day will be glorious for all of them. Now there are two things that you'll find in this particular chapter. First of all, God will judge Egypt and then God will save Egypt. God will judge Egypt and God will save Egypt. And this prophecy was probably fulfilled in about 670 B.C. when Egypt was conquered by Eschar Haddon, king of Assyria. The Assyrian conquest proved that the many gods of Egypt were powerless to help. Look again at verse 1. It says, The burden of Egypt, behold, the Lord rideth upon a swift cloud. In other words, God is coming in in great power to judge. And shall come into Egypt. And the idols of Egypt, here you have it, shall be moved at his presence, and the heart of Egypt shall melt in the midst midst of it. Now, and God had previously judged the idols of Egypt, hadn't He? And now He's going to do it again. He did it again in the days of of Isaiah, the prophet. And He did it under Moses. Remember, Moses brought judgment against all the gods of Egypt she turn to the book of numbers, well, Exodus twelve verse twelve, and then we'll have one in numbers. Exodus twelve verse twelve. It says, and this is announcing the death of the firstborn, and all of us are familiar that that's the last plague and the last judgment that that uh, God inflicted upon Egypt. Exodus twelve verse twelve says, And I will pass through the land of Egypt this night and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. Now look at this statement. And against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. So God had already done this. Now then, look in the book of Numbers, if you will, chapter 33 and verse 4. It says, For the Egyptians buried all their firstborn, which the Lord had smitten among them. Upon upon their gods also the Lord executed judgments. That's uh, Numbers 33, verse 4. So it's a repeat of what he did after he promised that he would do it. So God said first in Exodus, I'm going to do this judgment. And then in Numbers, it tells that he had already done it. And it's the record of what was done. So we find in, in uh, our text now, Isaiah 19, verse 1, The burden of Egypt, behold, the Lord rideth upon a swift cloud, and shall come into Egypt, and the idols of Egypt shall be moved at his presence, and the heart of Egypt, Egypt shall melt in the midst of it. It's promised again in the days of Isaiah that he's going to come in judgment. And in verse 2, he's going to... Uh, Set in there the Egyptians against the Egyptians, and there will be civil war. Look in verse 2. It says, And I will set the Egyptians against the Egyptians. Isn't that a rather peculiar statement? Remember, this was, this resulted, humanly speaking, in the call of Moses. The Egyptians against the Egyptians, and then the Egyptians, uh, first there was, uh, a conflict, and we'll put it in a different way. First, there was an Egyptian smiting an Israelite, and then there was a, a, the two brethren fighting each other. And here you have a similar situation, only it's the Egyptians fighting the Egyptians. Remember when Moses was called, and he thought that his brethren would have understood how that he came to be a deliverer, and that, that he would he, uh, deliver them from one Egyptian, a brother, from one Egyptian. And uh, this didn't result in any recognition of Moses. It wasn't the right time, and it was a little premature, so God sent him to the backside of the desert for 40 years to learn some things, and then finally he came back later and he delivered the children of Israel from Egyptian bondage. But here, he's going to uh, cause civil war to happen, and they shall fight everyone against his brother and everyone against his neighbor. Uh, city against city and kingdom against kingdom. You know, civil war is one of the worst kind of wars. It's not so bad to have a war with someone on the outside that's coming in and the oppressor coming in to try to, to take over a perfectly innocent and legal and good uh, country. You can fight that war because you say, well, it's, it's morally wrong for them to come and do what they're doing. Like when we were attacked by the Japanese... We felt more morally right in that war, as much so as in any war that I know of. But in, these, in a lot of the other things that take place, uh, we have to come to some sense of justifying ourselves in our actions. But on the other hand, when we had our civil war in this country, you know, and our nation was divided, that was one of the most terrible wars that, that this country has ever experienced, was our civil war. And they're having them in other places in the world. In fact, they just had one, didn't they? Where the rebels took over a certain nation and established a new government. What's it, Zaire, is it? or, or No, that's not Zaire. Uh, yeah, well, this other one that just happened in Africa. I think it was Zaire, wasn't it? Wasn't it Zaire? But anyway, they've had so many conflicts, I kind of get them confused. But that, the rebels took over, they've established their government. And so there was a civil war. So, and another thing I want you to notice, it says in verse uh, 3, And the spirit of Egypt shall fail in the midst thereof, and I will destroy the council thereof. Remember, the Egyptians were known for their wise counsel and their, their counselors. I will destroy the council thereof, and they shall seek to the idols, and to the charmers, and to them that have familiar spirits, and to the wizards. All of their seeking to familiar spirits and to their gods will not profit anything, will not advantage them. By the way, anyone that has to seek to familiar spirits and charmers and wizards and idols for help is going to come away empty. There are no idols that can deliver anyone, and all the all the uh, others are works of the devil in a in a way to try to tell you what's right, and they don't know what's right because, or tell you what's going to happen, and and try to give you encouragement. But from the dark side of things, we need the light of God and the light of God's word to guide us. But it says, "The spirit of Egypt shall fail in the midst there." Okay, now look at verse seven. 4. And the Egyptians will I give over into the hand of a cruel lord, and a fierce king shall rule over them, saith the Lord, the Lord of hosts. Now, there was a king of Assyria named Esar Haddon of Assyria who conquered Egypt in 671 B.C. And this actually took place. And that's what God was saying through Isaiah. The Egyptians will I give over into the hand of this cruel Lord. And they were given over to the hand of this fierce king that would rule over them. And not only would they have that kind of trouble, look at all the various troubles. Verse 1, their idols were mentioned and God would move against them. Verse 2, they were going to be, there would be civil war and they would be fighting against each other. And verse 3 tells that, uh, God would destroy the council, their, their council and their wise men and they shall seek their idols and their charmers and the familiar spirits and their wizards, and this wouldn't work. In verse 4, there would be a cruel Lord that would rule over them. And in verse 5, drought would come into the land and bring economic disaster to Egypt. You see, God has more weapons in His arsenal than we ever imagined. Let's not ever think that just because we're spared one thing that something else cannot happen. You and I, we live in, we live in this part of the country. Uh, we've heard of the floods up in uh, nebraska, haven't we we've heard of the various things that's happened over the country and the the fires out in California and the the rains and the floods up in certain parts and the mudslides and various things and we've heard of tornadoes all over various parts of the country and you say Oklahoma and Texas and also back east and Like through all the southeast tornado country, isn't it? And we're here in this country, in this part of the world. And we seem to be rather safe. There are not many tornadoes reported here. We don't have too many floods because we're in the mountains. And, you know, if it floods down in the river, you've got higher ground to go to. There's a lot of advantages. But it doesn't mean that God cannot touch our lives. And He has a way of doing it. So let's never feel overconfident that nothing bad can happen to us just because there are certain parts of the country that are more uh, prone to have those kind of disasters happen. So let's thank God for the grace and for the mercy He has upon us. Let's look at this in verse 5. The water shall fail from the sea and the river shall be wasted and dried up and they shall turn the rivers far away And the brooks of defense shall be emptied and dried up. The reeds and the flags shall wither. And you know, there's a lot of Bible interpreters that put all of these things in such a spiritual, mysterious way that they make it pertain to everything of the future. Now then, there are things that are indicated that will happen in the future. And when we get to the latter part of this chapter... When it says, in that day, beginning with verse 16, you'll find it uh, six times over from verse 16 mentioned. In that day, it's talking about a future day, and it is talking about a future time for Israel, and it is prophetic. But let's not make everything that you read read in the book of Isaiah a prophecy of something that will happen in the tribulation time. And that's where people get all messed up on their interpretation of Scripture. If it says it's literal here, it is literal. It happened to them in those days. The floods came, the the disaster came, the economic ruin came. And it's just a fact of life that it happened to Egypt in those days. In other words, let's do not try to spiritualize every statement of Scripture. I had a professor one time tell me, he says, Those that spiritualize sometimes tell spiritual lies. (laughs) <laughs> and sometimes you can go so far to spiritualize that you're telling spiritual lies. And so there are, there are prophecies of the future. And we know that they're valuable. But let's not just get hung up on prophecy and say everything has to do with something in the tribulation time. And when it talks about a river here, it's talking about the Euphrates over there. Well, there's an indication that the, We know that the Euphrates is going to be dried up. But we know also that God sent a drought and there was rivers dried up then, too. And there, the Nile River, as far as Egypt is concerned, was what they put all their stock in. And that was one of their gods, really. And he executed judgment against what? All the gods of Egypt. All of them. And we'll see some implications of future things. Let me give you this. This is, I will think I'll have time for this before I continue. You see, in Hosea, let me give you three references. Look in the book of Hosea, so that we'll understand when we're talking about Scripture and fulfillment of Scripture. Chapter 11, and verse 1. Let's read verse 1. Hosea 11, verse 1. It says, When... When Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. Now look to Exodus chapter 4, verse 22 and 23. Exodus chapter 4, verse 22 and 23. And thou shalt say unto Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. And I say unto thee, Let my son go, that he may serve me. And if thou refuse to let him go, behold, I will slay thy son, even thy firstborn. Verse 22, God says, Israel is my son, my firstborn. God says, When Israel was a child, I called my son out of Egypt. Well, he called Israel, his son, out of Egypt in the days of Moses and delivered them out of Egypt, by the way, by the hand of Moses and by God's divine power, didn't he? But, so, in a sense, that scripture of Hosea is looking back. Now, get this. That Hosea 11:1 is looking back to Exodus chapter 4 verse 22, when God said that he was calling his son out of Egypt and he told Moses to say to Pharaoh, "Let my son go, let him come out of Egypt." But also, look in Matthew, if you will. Matthew chapter 2. Remember, Jesus was taken by Joseph and Mary into Egypt. Verse 13. Let's begin reading with verse 13, and so we won't miss any of the story. And when they were uh, departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, and take the young child and his mother, and flee into Egypt. There you have Egypt again. Flee into Egypt. And be thou there until I bring thee word, bring thee word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt. Now then, look at verse 15. And was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, that word fulfilled, which was spoken by, the, of the, of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son. So what, Isaiah, what Hosea was saying in Hosea 11 verse 1 referred to the Lord and his, Him being called out of Egypt. And then it says that it was fulfilled. So you see Hosea's word out of Egypt when, it, when Israel was a child, out of, my, out of Egypt have I called my son. Okay, it looks back to the time that Israel as a nation was called out of Egypt. In Moses' day, it looks forward to a time that it would be fulfilled in the days of Jesus when He would be called out of Egypt back after Herod's death. See how the prophecy does? So that prophecy looks back. It says when. That would be back, wouldn't it? When Israel was a child. I called my son out of Egypt. Okay, but it also applies when Jesus was a child. He's the true Israel of God. And then it was fulfilled, because this prophecy of Hosea looked both directions. It looked back, and it looked forward. And it was fulfilled when Jesus was called out of Egypt. So, that's why I just wanted to give you that uh, word, so that when we're studying in the Old Testament, when we're studying prophecy, you can say it had a, right here in the days of Isaiah, what we've been reading had a historical fulfillment. It had a historical... I shouldn't say fulfillment, because fulfillment means that it's filled full and then it's complete. So it it had a historical reference to what was happening. It, It meant what it was saying historically in the days of Isaiah. We're talking about Isaiah now. The context of what we've been studying. To Egypt. But it also, when we get into some things... It will have a fulfillment in the ultimate future. And it will indicate when that fulfillment would take place. And we'll start with verse 16 saying, In that day shall Egypt be likened to... And then in verse 18, In that day shall five cities. In verse 19, In that day shall there be an altar unto the Lord. And verse on down. We'll get them when we get there. But let's take it again verse by verse when we come to verse 6. It says, well, let's read verse 5 again. The water shall fail from the sea, and the river shall be wasted. You have Isaiah chapter 19, verse six, uh, 5 now. And dried up. And they shall turn the rivers far away, and the brooks of defense shall be emptied. And dried up. The reeds and the flags shall wither. The paper reeds by the brooks, by the mouth of the brooks, and everything sown by the brooks shall wither. Be uh, shall wither, be driven away, and be no more. It says, The fishers also shall mourn, and all they that cast angle into the brook shall lament, and they that spread nests upon the water shall languish. Moreover, they, they that work in the, flack, the fine flax, and they that weave, or the weavers, uh, weave networks shall be confounded. And they shall be broken broken in the purposes thereof, and it says, All That makes sluices and ponds for fish. In other words, they would have to take all the fish and try to preserve them by making just some water for them to be in. So what does it show us? The Nile River, the source of Egypt's economy, and the streams and the canals of the land would all dry up. And this would put the farmers and the fishermen and the cloth manufacturers out of business. And you find economic disaster because of the drought that God would bring upon them. And for centuries, the Egyptians were respected for their wisdom, but now the princes and the counselors would not know what to do. We begin reading in verse 11, it shows that the wise men, the famous wise men of Egypt would be unable to avert disaster. They were known for that, but now they would not know what to do. It says, Surely the princes of Zoan, verse 11, look at it, are fools. The counsel of the wise counselors of Pharaoh has become brutish. How say ye unto Pharaoh, I am the son of the wise, the son of the ancient kings? Where are they? Remember, Paul asked in the book of uh, 1 Corinthians, he says, where are the wise? Where are the disputers of this world? Hath not God made foolish the weak things of this world and the small things of this world and confounded those things that are wise? So, Where are they? Where are the wise men? And let them tell thee now. And let them know what the Lord of hosts hath purposed upon Egypt. They didn't know. And then it says, verse uh, 13, The princes of Zoan have become fools. Look at this. The princes of Noth are deceived. They have also seduced Egypt, even they uh, that are the stay of the tribes thereof. Zoan or... Tannies was another name, was a capital city in the northeast section of the delta. And it says that they have become fools. In verse 14, it says, The Lord hath mingled a perverse spirit in the midst thereof, and they have caused Egypt to err in every work thereof, as a drunken man staggered in his own vomit. What a very sad picture. Instead of walking a straight path, the nation was led astray by leaders who were as dizzy and as, unstable as a drunken man staggering around and even in his own vomit. And this is sure not a very pretty picture, is it? Brother uh, Jim heard me tell about the drunken man one time. A little thing I used to say about a man that's given to strong drink. Some of you may have not heard it. My dad taught me this. He was an officer here in Rio Dosa years ago, and I'd see what alcohol did to so many people. And <clears throat> I never did want to drink any of it. But anyway, he taught me this little rhyme. It says, <clears throat> It was in the late November, as well as I remember. I was walking down the street in modern pride, and my heart began to flutter, and I lay down in the gutter, and a pig came up and lay down by my side. And as I lay there in the gutter with my heart all in a flutter, a lady passing by was heard to say, you can tell the man that boozes by the company he chooses. And the pig got up and slowly walked away. So that's what alcohol will do for you. But this whole nation would be what? It says, Egypt, they have caused Egypt to err in every work thereof as a drunken man staggered in his own vomit. Now, I mean, that's a sad picture. Now, God destroyed everything that the Egyptians trusted in. He destroyed their political unity. He destroyed their, he destroyed their economy, their religion because they worshipped idols, their wisdom, the wise men they had, and He made them an easy target for the Assyrians. And by the way, when the international news is frightening to you and I, And you wonder where God is, read Psalm chapter 2. Read the second Psalm. It says, Why do the heathen rage? Remember? Let me see. Why do the heathen rage? And the people imagine a vain thing. It says, The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. Now, these are the wicked, right? The wicked people. It says in verse 4, He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. You know sometimes, and I don't want to apply this uh, to the fact that this does apply to the Lord. And He can laugh at the the onslaughts of men. But you know sometimes I get amused at people trying to fight against against the things of God fight against the church, and fight against Christianity. I uh, heard a little talk program the other day. Well, it was a news news program. And uh, this one lady says, well, you know they're talking about all this uh, adulterous situation that's been coming up in various areas. And she says, well, you know, I was thinking about all of this, and I think she had some pretty good advice to the others that were on the program. She says, you know, there was a woman that was caught in the act of adultery that was brought to Jesus. And I went to the Bible to see how that, how that uh, Jesus would handle it and how the Bible teaches we ought to handle it. It says it looks to me like that he realized the sin, but he acted in compassion to try to help her. And in two instances, Jesus did that. And you and I need not be so condemning to people. Adultery is a sin. It's a sin in the sight of God. And God will bring His own measure of judgment upon it. But that's up to Him. It's not up to you and I. But Jesus said, go and sin no more. Right? So you and I, we get so condemning about everything that goes on in this world. And as I say, adultery is a sin. And you and I should preach the Ten Commandments that you break God's law. But yet, there are people that are in such situations that we ought to have compassion on and try to restore them. And Jesus said... He said, which of you, without sin, first, let him first cast a stone? And they all went away from what? The least to the greatest. And by the way, when he said, which of you is without sin, the word sin, he was indicating this very same sin. Not some sin like stealing a, a pencil down on the job or a notebook or something. He was talking about this very same sin. And Jesus brought the commandments to light and He elevated them to the to the point that, listen, He said that whosoever looketh upon a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery already in his heart. Now, these fellows may not have done anything, but they were so guilt-stricken and conscience-stricken that they had to walk away, didn't they? And I'm, I'm not trying to justify or condone anything. Jesus didn't condone it. He told her to go and sin no more. But I am saying this, sometimes we become so judgmental that we do not realize that we all have feet of clay. And we need all to pray very much that we will never be, do the things that are wrong as far as those kind of sins are concerned. And pray and ask God's help. Because how have the mighty fallen? David, Solomon, on the news every day you hear it. Preachers, deacons, laymen. So don't ever get too high up and high and mighty. We need God's grace and God's help. Well, anyway, the thing about it is, God can see the heathen opposition against him. And it's fulfilled in the book of Acts chapter 4. And we'll go and read a part of it in Acts chapter four. Listen. <clears throat> in Acts chapter four, if I can find it, verse 23. And being let go, they went their own comp- they went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. And when they had heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, "Lord, thou art God which hast made heaven and earth." and the sea, and all that in them is. Now, look at verse 25. Acts 4, verse 25. Who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, and he's quoting this second psalm we begin to read to you. Why did the heathen rage, and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His Christ. In the book of Acts, Peter is applying this same scripture that we read in the book of Psalms to what they did to Jesus in bringing about his death. Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod, and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done and now, Lord, behold their threatenings, and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness we may speak thy word by stretching forth thine hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy, of thy holy child Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken, and they were assembled they, and they were assembled. Uh, where they were assembled together and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and they spake the Word of God with boldness. See? So there's the fulfillment of what we find back there in the, in the Psalm. And it was concerning Jesus. Now then, Isaiah 20, And let me just drop this in before we finish this chapter, because I want to finish this chapter and what we have to say. But Isaiah 20 is a footnote, and I'll just mention it, I won't go into it right now. A footnote to all we've been studying here about Egypt. But let me tell you this, God will save Egypt. Look at beginning with verse 16, we'll have to skip some verses. It says, In that day shall Egypt be likened unto women. It has to do with the physical stature of a woman. As the weaker vessel. In other words, their weakness will be known. And it shall be afraid and fear because of the shaking of the hand of the Lord of hosts which he shaketh over it. And the land of Judah shall be a terror unto Egypt. Everyone that maketh mention thereof shall be afraid of himself, in himself, because of the counsel of the Lord of hosts. Now these things are prophetic of the future. Egypt will be blessed. With Israel in the last days, and notice it says in verse sixteen, in that day, verse eighteen says, in that day, shall five cities in the land of Egypt speak the language of the Canaan. In other words, they will have the uh, a scriptural language and speak and swear the Lord of Hosts. One shall be called the city of destruction. In that day, there shall be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt, and they'll be worshiping the Lord, a and a pillar at the border thereof to the Lord. And it shall be for a sign and for a witness unto the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. For they shall cry unto the Lord because of the oppressors. In other words, Egypt is going to cry out because of, in the Old Testament of the Assyrian oppression and in the future there's going to be a cry of Egypt to God and repentance. And he shall send them a Savior and a great one and he shall deliver them. That's a future deliverance. In verse 21, And the Lord shall be known to Egypt, and the Egyptians shall know the Lord in that day. Look. Conversion of the heathen. And shall do sacrifice and oblation. That's in the future. Yea, they shall vow, vow unto the Lord and perform it. In verse 22, And the Lord shall smite Egypt. He shall smite and heal it. Look, what does He do? He smites Egypt that He may heal Egypt. And they shall return even to the Lord. And He shall be entreated of them and shall heal them. There's a time in the future that they're going to be saved. And not only that, these last three verses are very wonderful. Look. In that day shall there be a highway out of Egypt to Assyria. And the Assyrians shall come into Egypt. And the Egyptian into Assyria. And the Egyptians shall serve with the Assyrians. Now, Assyria is modern Iraq. And Egypt, you know where it's located. And Israel is between. And there's going to be a concourse between these two nations on either side of Israel. And then Israel's going to be involved. Verse 24. It says, In that day shall Israel be third with Egypt and with Assyria. Look, these these last two verses are the most important in this whole chapter. In that day, a future day, shall Israel be the third be third with Egypt and with Assyria, even a blessing in the midst of the land. Can you see that? The phrase in that day is used six times in this passage we've been reading. And it it refers to the last days when Christ shall establish His messianic kingdom on earth. And these remarkable changes will be be, uh, taking place. And Egypt will fear Israel and become converted to the worship of the true God. They will trust Him, not their idols, and pray to Him in times of need. And this promise also includes that a vast number of Muslims in Egypt will one day turn to the Lord and be saved. And it says that they will be blessed, and not only that, they're going to be a blessing. They're going to be a blessing. They're not today, are they? Can you imagine Iraq being a blessing today? Can you imagine Egypt being a blessing today? Can you imagine the, the gathering together? In other words, Egypt will be lifted out uh, of their situation and receive Christ. And they will be a blessing. And they will, they will have a blessing and they will be a blessing. Let's read those last two verses in closing. In that day shall Israel be the third with Egypt and with Assyria, even a blessing in the midst of the land, whom the Lord of hosts shall bless Saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, mine inheritance. Egypt, my people, Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, mine inheritance. That will be a future time to look forward. We're talking about millennial blessings. We're talking about not just the Jews being saved, but Jews and Gentiles. United in a peaceful kingdom and loving the Lord And the hostility. In other words, the peace that they're talking about in the Middle East and trying to humanly bring about will one day be accomplished by the Lord Himself. And only in that way. It won't happen until then. There's going to be this conflict until Jesus comes. All the conflict that's going on is going to continue. Someone says, well, they're trying to make peace. Trying is a good word. Because they're not doing it, are they? about the time they think they have something on the table and some agreement made, the first thing you know, they start doing things that cause the other people to get, get angry with one another and they keep on and keep on and have the violence. And that's why, beloved, let me say this in closing. You and I as Christians, we need to be at peace with one another and learn to live in harmony with one another. It's not always the thing who's right and who's wrong and who's got this and who's got that. It's that we've got to learn to live together and love each other, especially in the local church and in the community and round about us. And that's God's will for us, too. If you have that attitude, you're going to, Jesus says, and in nothing they shall be offended. You and I should not take offense about too many things that we do. Well, thank you for your patience, kind attention.